Hello and welcome to The Europeans. Uh, if you can't remember who I am, because it's been a while, this is Katie in Paris. And this is Dominic in Amsterdam. And I thought we could play a fun game, Dominic, and ask the listeners to guess from the sound of our voices which one of us has just had an obscenely long holiday and which one has not really had a holiday at all. <laughs> Too close to the bone? <sighs> Yeah, too close to the bone. Katie's been on holiday forever. In my defence, it wasn't a regular holiday. It was my honeymoon. And also, this was my first August since I became a French citizen. So I wanted to really go for it. I'm happy for you. And I hope you learnt lots of really interesting things about North Americans that you're going to come and tell us. I had a wonderful trip uh, travelling up the west coast of the United States and then into Canada. But there was actually one moment where I really thought of you. Oh, yeah? Because I was standing inside a fallen redwood tree in California. You know, these like absolutely mind-blowingly huge trees. Where's this going? And um, instead of contemplating the like the magnificence of nature, I found myself thinking, like, God, this would make a really good podcasting studio. Because these trees have got like amazing sound quality. They're very sound absorbent. That's funny because I have been thinking about sticking cork to my walls. There you are. Don't bother. Just get a giant tree. Much simpler. So anyway, that was my trip. What have you been doing? Nothing as exciting as that, sadly. I do now have a cat. Yay. So we now have an official podcast cat. Her name is Sadie and she's wonderful. And I'm a, I suddenly got a bit worried about her meowing and how it's going to ruin our podcast because you're going to hear meows all the time. But I've shut her away in my bedroom. I think it would be nice to hear a bit of meowing every week. It would be like, do you remember when we used to have the church bells in your old flat? Uh, how could I ever forget? Let's replace that with meows. I will record some meows for you and maybe we can play it at the end of the episode. Thank you. In the meantime, this is a bit of a special episode, isn't it? It is. It is our 200th episode. We think. <laughs> it's kind of give or take, right? <laughs> I counted it and no one else has double checked it, which is making me a bit nervous. <laughs> but um, I like didn't include our trailer and I didn't include reruns. So yeah, I think it is. Happy birthday to us. So we're treating it as our 200th episode. And as such, we thought we'd better get a bit of a VIP guest. Who is it, Dominic? Well, we managed to persuade someone pretty exciting to come and talk to us this week. And Iron Man Nutt, a triathlon champion, but also a former finance minister, foreign minister, and prime minister of Finland, Professor Alexander Stubb will be joining us later on in the show to take a bit of an overview of where we are in Europe right now. We are very excited to speak to him, our first ever former prime minister on the show. It actually isn't our first ever former prime minister on the show. Really? It's not even our first former Finnish prime minister. Oh, yeah. We spoke to that <laughs> child who was Finnish prime minister for the day. We did. I'm going to post that interview in the show notes in case people would like to uh, compare our two former Finnish prime minister interviews. Well, sorry for the disinformation. Um, that's coming up later on the show. But first... Who's had a good week? Well, uh, it's a bit of a depressing start to the new season, but I am going to give good week to the far-right Swedish party, the Sweden Democrats. Sweden held elections over the weekend, and we held off on recording this until the last possible minute in the hope of knowing the results before I talked about it. But as we're recording this Wednesday morning, we still don't have official confirmation of who has won this election. Uh, it looks like a block of right-wing parties might have secured a tiny wafer-thin majority, but there are still some final votes being counted. So check the news when you hear this on Thursday or later in the week. By Thursday, we'll probably know for sure. 
But whatever those final numbers are, I have got to give this far-right party good week. The Sweden Democrats are now the second biggest party in Sweden, with about 20% of the vote. And that is very chilling. You say that the, the right bloc has won, but actually, we shouldn't forget that the Social Democrats were the biggest party, by like quite a way, again... And have been like in every single election since. For like a hundred years, yes. Yeah. You are quite right. And um, yeah, I don't really want to be one of these many, many journalists in the international media that like only talks about how well the far right have done. As you say, the Social Democrats are still the most popular party in Sweden as they have been for like a century. They did better than they did in the last election four years ago. Magdalena Andersson, the first woman ever to serve as Sweden's prime minister, she's personally still fairly popular. And her allies, the Greens, have also done better than last time. The problem for the parties on the left is that this is all about coalition building. And so far, at least, it looks like as a bloc, the right have done better. And within that right-wing block, the far right seem to have done best, right? Right. So one of the biggest shocks of this election is that the Sweden Democrats have done better than the moderates. Uh, the moderates have historically been the mainstream conservative party that has dominated Swedish politics along with the Social Democrats. In this election, the moderates appear to have won fewer votes than the far right, which feels like a big moment and a frightening one. Uh, that comes against a lot of concern over rising gang violence in Sweden, Gun crime is rising faster there than any other country in Europe. And the fact that a lot of the shootings have happened in immigrant neighbourhoods has added fuel to this rather ugly debate over migration policy, which to some extent has favoured this very hardline party. But one of the other reasons that I think the Sweden Democrats perform so well is that more supposedly mainstream right-wing parties have spent this election campaign normalising the party and its ideas. And they've shot themselves in the foot by doing that because nobody seems to have really benefited from it, apart from the Sweden Democrats themselves. All of these right-wing parties that teamed up with them to share a platform for this election, they've done worse than they did at the last election, at least according to the preliminary results. So you say these other right-wing parties have been normalising the far right. What kind of things are we talking about? How does that look? Well, first of all, just the fact that more establishment parties have been willing to join forces with the Sweden Democrats in the first place for this election... That's pretty controversial. Uh, for years, the Sweden Democrats were seen as really, really fringe. Their roots historically were in white nationalist neo-Nazi groups in the 80s. And so working with them was really taboo. But under their current leader, Yimi Orkashon, the Sweden Democrats have been attempting to change their image. It's quite similar, actually, to what Marine Le Pen has been doing in France. Uh, so for one thing, even though being Islamophobic is still par for the course within the party, and several candidates in this election were revealed as, you know, posting vile hate speech online or encouraging people to join neo-Nazi protests, officially, the Sweden Democrats are proud to say that they have zero tolerance these days for racism. And Orkashon has also done that thing where, you know, he presents himself as a regular guy who likes regular Swedish things like hot dogs. As he's been doing this, the Sweden Democrats' share of the vote has been growing with every passing election. And they've been tapping into the working class vote in the same way that we've seen populist parties doing across Europe, to the point where other Swedish parties on the right have stopped saying, oh, like, we would never, ever work with these people. So already opening the door to working with them has brought this far-right party in from the political cold. 
At the same time, other Swedish parties have also been borrowing far-right talking points. Uh, so the moderate party has been accused of basically turning into a light version of the Sweden Democrats for this election. Their leader, Ulf Kristersson, has campaigned for a much tougher immigration policy. And he talked about Sweden's having lost control on everything from gun crime to like discipline in the school classroom. That is now, like within Europe, quite familiar and actually broader than Europe, this idea of mainstream right-wing parties borrowing from the far right. Right. It, it feels like it's becoming a really entrenched pattern in Europe and elsewhere, as you say. This idea of establishment parties saying, oh, well, like, if we borrow ideas from the far right and talk like the far right, especially on immigration and on Islam, we can steal their votes and they'll still be a fringe party and we'll stay in power. I saw this happen in the French presidential election that I covered this year. And while Marine Le Pen is still not in power here, she got her best ever score in that election. But once again, in Sweden, this strategy doesn't seem to have worked especially well for these parties borrowing these far-right ideas. And if anything, it's just made those more hardline views seem more politically acceptable and mainstream. And therefore, the party itself starts to seem more acceptable and mainstream. But I mean, maybe it has worked because these right-wing parties might be about to get into power. Might. That is true. This is a very topsy-turvy election. So even though those other smaller parties haven't done very well in terms of their vote scores, you're right, they could well end up in power. But is it looking at all likely that we might actually end up with a far-right Swedish prime minister, as well as possibly a far-right Italian prime minister in the upcoming election there? Yeah, we are going to have to talk about Italy in the coming weeks. Uh, that election is at the end of the month. But in Sweden, at least, it isn't looking likely that the far-right leader, Yimi Orkashon, is going to become prime minister. And that is basically because even though the right-wing parties went into this election in a kind of alliance, the other parties in this bloc have said that they won't accept anyone from the Sweden Democrats becoming even ministers in a government, let alone prime minister. So they might come up with some kind of deal for the far-right to vote to support laws that a right-wing government wants to pass, but they wouldn't be a far-right PM. A more likely option is that the Speaker of Parliament asks the head of the moderates to have a go at forming the government, uh, Ulf Kristersson. Even though, as we've said, his party had a crap performance, the worst in decades. Uh, so they performed worse, but they're much more likely to be able to pull together a working government. Like I said, this is a very, very topsy-turvy election. And also we're recording this before we know the final results. So it could actually be that the left-wing bloc do end up like sneaking ahead. I mean, the one thing I think we can say with certainty right now is that whatever government Sweden ends up with, this is going to take a while. This time, it looks especially difficult to form a coalition because within the right-wing bloc and the left-wing bloc, there are major differences in their policies and values. So, for example, if we look at the right... This guy who might end up as prime minister, Christian, he wants to put a cap on welfare benefits. The far right Sweden Democrats, they present themselves as supporting the downtrodden and they're really, really against cutting welfare. So whoever ends up getting the right to at least have a stab of forming a government, it is going to be messy and slow. And that is coming at a time when there's a lot going on in Sweden. There is an economic slowdown, same as everywhere else, but also the whole business of joining NATO. So not really ideal time for political paralysis. Mm. Who has had a bad week? It has been a bad week for the football world in Bosnia and Herzegovina after a row broke out about a planned football friendly against Russia in November. Now, I learned about this row thanks to some brilliant reporting from our former podcast guest, Alexander Breza, in Euronews. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but I'll also try to summarize what has happened for your ears here today. 
So Russia have been generally quite isolated in the sporting world since the invasion of Ukraine, right? Yes, they have. Um, The Russian team was immediately excluded from the Winter Olympics after the full-scale invasion started, along with Belarusian athletes. And since then, most sporting bodies have followed the International Olympic Committee's lead and banned Russian and Belarusian teams and athletes from international competitions. In tennis and cycling, individual Russians have been allowed to compete, but as kind of neutral athletes, not listed as Russian competitors. And uh, what about football? The Russian national football team is banned from the World Cup, which is starting in November in Qatar. And Russian and Belarusian clubs have also been excluded by UEFA from European championships, such as the Champions League. So the Russian national football team has been pretty isolated this year. They do have two other planned friendlies with countries that are to some extent politically aligned with them, Kyrgyzstan and Iran. But this planned match against Bosnia and Herzegovina in November, scheduled one day before the World Cup begins, caused quite an uproar amongst many Bosnians who follow football after it was announced at the end of last week. But if UEFA have banned Russia from playing football matches, are Bosnia and Herzegovina even allowed to be doing this? They are allowed to, yes. And actually UEFA confirmed that this week um, because friendly matches are not affected Mm -hmm. by the competition bans that are currently in place. Okay. And like, what have the Bosnian team got to say about this? Are they like delighted to be playing this match or or what? Well, according to Alexander Brezar's article that I mentioned at the top, the decision has gone down like a lead balloon amongst some of the top football stars of the national team. The team captain, Inter Milan's Edin Dzeko, told the outlet Clicks, I am against playing this match. I am always and only for peace. He went on to say, unfortunately, I am not the one deciding who Bosnia will play against, but my position on this is clear and it does not involve playing this match while innocent people are being killed. His view has been backed up publicly by other members of the national team and also in a statement by the biggest supporters group of the national team in Bosnia. The Ukrainian national football body have also intervened, writing to the Bosnian Football Association, asking them please to reconsider this match. They pointed out that the last football match of the Ukrainian national football team in peacetime was actually against Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm. And they say that this friendly against Russia looks as if it is aimed at supporting the actions of the Russian government in Ukraine regarding the continuation of the war. It does feel very unfortunate that they're called friendly matches. Oh, I know. It doesn't exactly send the right image. Yeah. Although maybe they're not called that in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I don't know. But why did the Bosnian Football Association even agree to this uh, so-called friendly in the first place? Uh, Yeah, well, that's quite a big question. And to try to understand it, I think we have to understand a bit of the history and current political situation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The devastating Bosnian war ended in 1995 with the Dayton Agreement, which was supported by the United States and created two separate administrative bodies, both with some autonomy to make decisions. One, the largely Serb-populated Republika Srpska, and the other is the Bosniak-Croat-populated Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
There is also an umbrella government body, which has a three-headed presidency, a president that represents each of the three main ethnic groups in the country. Mm -hmm. And this delicately balanced political system has been in pretty serious political crisis over the past year. Many say the worst political crisis since the war ended in 1995 due to an attempt by Bosnian Serb leaders to withdraw from state institutions. And that's a move that's backed by Putin and the Kremlin. And actually, that support is mirrored by some radical Bosnian Serbs who have backed Putin's invasion of Ukraine, even though the majority of the country is critical of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And so this controversial decision by the Bosnian Football Association to organize a friendly match with Russia is being seen within this political context by some observers as a deliberate attempt at stirring the political pot and heightening ethnic tensions in the run-up to a general election, which is in the diary for October. Mm. Breza, for his Euronews article, spoke to a football podcaster and writer, Sasha Ibrul, about the situation. And he sees this decision as being part of a pre-election campaign move. He says it's a deliberate and intentional act to create a negative atmosphere in the national team. Mm-hmm. So it's very complicated. And uh, yeah, nobody knows exactly what happened when the decision was made. And we do know that the committee who decided had heard from the players already that they thought it shouldn't go ahead. But they went with it anyway, um, with a vote of five, four and one against. I mean, if it is getting all of this pushback, is there any chance that it might be ultimately cancelled? It does seem like there is a chance, yes. Um, Nobody knows what will happen at this stage, but it is going to be a difficult decision for the Bosnian Football Association going forward because top players, including the captain, have refused to play Ah. in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. So the Bosnian Football Association could go ahead with the match and suspend players who refuse to play, but... That would be quite a big decision to make, to bench their best players for a game that actually isn't necessary. Right. And Irfan Duric, the vice president of the Football Association, was actually somewhat critical of the decision to organise this match against Russia. Weren't they the people that wanted the match to go ahead in the first place? Uh, Yes, but it was actually the association's emergency committee who voted for it by five votes to one, as I said before, he argues that the entire executive committee should be consulted about this decision. So it could yet be cancelled. And there is actually even more pressure for it to be cancelled because the mayor of Sarajevo also came out strongly against the planned match and threatened to cancel the cooperation between the city and the football association if the match goes ahead. So we'll have to see what happens. An interesting side note is that the Russian team haven't actually officially announced this match themselves. Only Bosnia and Herzegovina have. So they may also be aware that it's possible that this does not go ahead. Well, regardless of what happens, I'm really glad to see the uh, return of our sports correspondent, Dominic Kramer. (laughs) So inappropriate. I'm sorry if I use wrong football terms again. One thing that we've been reflecting on over the summer here at the Europeans is how we're going to keep making this podcast into next year. Because we love making it, but like everything else, making this show costs money. Uh, Which is why we are particularly grateful to the lovely people who signed up over the summer to send us a little donation each month so that we can keep paying ourselves and our producers in Amsterdam and Warsaw for their work on the show. 
Who are these lovely new supporters, Dominic? They are Carl Kern, Mario Jankovic Romano, Olivier Roy, Dan Drew, Valentin Dupuis, and Lisa Popper, Nasia Minyayeva, Sander, and Kai Bradbury for increasing their pledge. Thank you all so much. Let's keep this podcast going for another 200 episodes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say 200 years then. <laughs> <laughs> no. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up to donate. You can do it in loads of different currencies and you can pay either a little bit each month or upfront for the whole year if that's easier for you. We would be super grateful for your help. All the info is at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. I feel like there's a bit of a back to school mood here at the Europeans. It is September. Our pencils are newly sharpened. And since it's the start of a new season, it feels like a good time to zoom out and take a look at the general state of things in Europe right now. There is a lot going on. Big changes in the state of the war in Ukraine, governments grappling with an energy crisis. And so we wanted to get a steer on where we are at as a continent right now as we head into the rest of the year. Yeah, you could kind of see this interview as a bit of an alternative to Ursula von der Leyen's State of the European Union that she will have given by the time you hear this, but we haven't actually heard yet. Lots of Europeans probably won't, let's be honest. <laughs> it's true. Will anyone hear it? Anyway, since this is, after all, our 200th episode, uh, we thought it might be nice to get a particularly fancy guest on the show. Not that all our guests aren't fancy, they are, but they aren't usually former prime ministers. Uh, this week, we were very glad to speak to Alexander Stubb. Once upon a time, he was the prime minister of Finland from 2014 to 2015. These days, he is the director of the School of Transnational Governments at the European University Institute in Florence. It is basically a training school for the next generation of European leaders. Alexander is also a freakishly successful athlete. He just won a triathlon championship over the weekend. And he took some time out of his recovery to give us a ring from Florence. As a former prime minister, we can't help but start by asking you about the quote-unquote scandal that got people talking while we were away over the summer. Prime Minister Sanna Marin got a lot of criticism for partying. Did you face anything like this while you were in office? My own sort of scandals was about being too open wearing shorts to a press conference in the middle of the summer by a beach, which was organized during my holidays. Or I opened an amusement park and a kid asked me to be in one of these dart boards and they were throwing foam darts at me and asked, could you go there? And I thought, what the heck? You know, the kid is asking, so I'll go there. So of course, then there are pictures of me rotating in this dart board and being thrown at. That was another scandal. And then I got a lot of shit for doing too many triathlons or doing too much sport. So, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, but it's, it's never comfortable to be in those situations. So I wish the PM well, and I'm sure she'll get completely out of it as well. So finish political scandals out the way. Um, we invited you here today because we wanted to take a wider look at the state of Europe at the moment um, and to zoom out a bit. We are six months into a war in Europe. And I think we can say that there have been ups and downs in terms of how our leaders have responded to the conflict. Looking at our national leaders and the EU leaders, what do you think European leaders have managed to do well in their handling of the war? And what should they have done better? I've actually never seen European Union leaders be 
more united, more efficient, more determined than we have in the past six months. I mean, there are a couple of hiccups right in the beginning, but after that, it's been, you know, one wave of sanctions after the other. There's been quite robust responses to sending military equipment and finances about dealing with um, refugees. So, you know, if this was sort of a school mark going from A to failure, I would certainly you know, give European leaders an A minus. I think they've been quite good. I sort of struggle to see bad sides in how things have been dealt with, because remember, we live in a suboptimal world. It's never perfect. In the early days of the war, the EU promised that its sanctions would cripple the Russian economy. And even though they've clearly had some effect, I sometimes get pretty demoralized reading these accounts of how, for wealthy Russians at least, life goes on pretty much as normal. Should we just be okay with that? Or does Europe need to be doing something different on that front with its sanctions? I think you have to understand, or we have to understand, that sanctions are not a magic bullet. They don't hit immediately and symmetrically. As a matter of fact, they take time and the effects are asymmetric. But I do think that they are an efficient tool. So the way in which I see it is that Russia will be eventually fully isolated, politically, economically, financially, culture, sport, energy, travel. And usually you have to put sanctions down in waves. And that's exactly what the European Union and actually the West with the United Kingdom, the United States have done. And they're starting to take effect. I mean, somewhere quickly at other places, a little bit more slowly. And remember that the Russian leadership would not be saying that if you do not lift your sanctions, we will not provide you with energy. It is hitting their economy and it is hitting it big time. Uh, it just takes time. We are soon going to be heading into what is looking like it will be a pretty grim winter with mass energy shortages. And it feels pretty unbelievably short-sighted that so many European governments could have let themselves get so dependent on Russia for their energy needs. And one recently departed leader has faced a lot of criticism in particular, Angela Merkel. How much do you think her legacy should be reassessed in light of everything that's happened since she left office? Well, I think sometimes we over-rationalize the past, we over-dramatize the present and underestimate the future. And that's why we get into these catch-22 situations. No, I mean, you see with Russia, I think bona fide, our thinking was cooperation and integration leads to path dependency. Path dependency leads to a situation where you avoid war. And of course, in the Russian account, you know, I guess we were wrong. With Merkel and with many of us, the basic idea was a combination of idealism and realism. Idealism that Russia will become a modern international European state and cooperate with us. And realism in the sense that if they don't, we need to be prepared. Now, some were prepared better than others. I mean, Finland is a great example. We have 1,340 kilometers of border with Russia. We always wanted to cooperate, but at the same time, we have one of the biggest militaries in Europe. And we don't have... 900,000 reserves, 280,000 that we can mobilize in time of war. We don't have 64 F-18s and just bought another 62 F-35s in order to protect us from Sweden. So, you know, we, we played the game. And with energy dependency, we went for diverse. So we have nuclear. We might have been 100% dependent on Russian gas, but that was only 5% of our uh, energy. And we were able to deviate that immediately when the Russians turned the gas off. So, you know, I'm bad at pointing fingers because that's wisdom by hindsight. 
the developments of the last couple of days feel like potentially a quite major turning point in the war with Ukraine retaking a large amount of territory in the Kharkiv region. No one can really know how this war ends, but are there any possible scenarios for the war ending that you see as more likely than others? It's a really tough one, you know. I felt that throughout the war, from my perspective as a uh, you know, someone interested in international relations and someone who's been in the room with Putin and others, you could sort of know where things are going. But I'm still struggling to find some kind of an end game. You know, there are only options. I mean, and of course, the three main options are that Russia will take over Ukraine. Well, I think that's very unlikely. The other one is that Ukraine will fully push back Russia. I think it's possible, but also quite unlikely. So the third one is basically a protracted long struggle and a war with territorial losses, but I don't even know whether that's going to be the case. So I don't see a way out yet. I mean, we're half a year into the war. I simply do not have an endgame. I wish I did, but that's again coming back to the notion of, you know, underestimating the future. I mean, it's nice and it's great to see what Ukraine is doing from our perspective, from my perspective in Kharkiv, but, you know, are they going to push back all the way? Uh, what's going to happen in the Crimean Peninsula? How is Putin going to react? What we're certainly seeing is, I think, a very weak Russian military. But even when it's weak, it's dangerous. Talking of the future, you are currently in charge of training the next generation of European leaders from your campus in Florence. What do you think are the main challenges that these future leaders will be grappling with when they or some of them at least, come into powerful positions? One of them starts from uh, being in the public eye. I think it's much harsher, it's much rougher than what it used to be. I mean, democracy was supposed to be slow, uh, compromise-oriented, and sometimes happening in the back room, and it was supposed to be truly representative democracy. Now we're much more into a pace of democracy, which is direct democracy, reactions from social media, uh, media and, and uh, otherwise. Secondly, they're probably going to be expecting a much more demanding general public, especially if they are in, in democracies. Even though life is improving, we're doing things better. People start demanding more and more. They should certainly probably be expecting slightly shorter careers. We're not going to see the Angela Merkels of this world or this Mark Rutas of this world. We're probably going to see a more rapid turnover of politicians. And you can also get personally burnt. So one of the things I do... Here, when our master's students begin, I give a work-life balance uh, lecture or discussion where I go through my personal experiences and the things that I say they should focus on. And I keep on stressing that it's not so much about having one career for life. It's about having many different careers, probably, in different fields. And it's also about probably expectations management. They have to understand that failure quite often is actually a good thing and you learn from it and things are not going to go the way in which you predict they're going to go. I tell them to take care of their body, which means sleep, eat and exercise. Stay healthy because that, you know, gives you a good core then for your mental side. And on the mental side, I say read, learn, listen, be curious, avoid cynicism. And that takes you far. I also stress the fact that careers nowadays, very important. They're also part, partly about, of course, hard work, but a lot of it is about luck. You happen to be in the right place at the right time. So I'm telling them to take it a bit easy because I, these are fantastic students. You know, they, they don't get here unless they are, you know, top of the notch. And um, sometimes perfectionism can be a bad thing in leadership. 
well, you certainly seem to have found a, a very unique balance of your own between politics and casually winning triathlons. Um, but, but why do you... <laughs> it's easier when you're a professor, let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. But why do you think uh, the next generation of leaders should be preparing for shorter political careers? Two things. One is that they are, should be prepared for longer life, and two is shorter careers. So longer life, the life expectancy of, you know, if you're born 2000 is 100 years. I keep on saying that in my generation, it was simple. Number one, study. Number two, work. Number three, retire. For these kids, I say it's about study, work, study again, work, study again, work, and then you die. So I don't want to sound morbid, but, but, you know, pensions are probably going to be a thing of the past and you're going to be ending up employing yourself in many different ways. I encourage this. I don't like what I call political broilers. In other words, people who are born from a young age only to be in politics. Do something else in between. I've been able to balance, and I really feel very privileged. I've done academic work, I've done civil service, and I've done politics. The only thing that I'm missing still is the private sector, but you never know. I'm only 54. (laughs) So now this is our 200th episode, and yeah, we're really pleased you could join us for this momentous occasion. And Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. For my final question, I wanted... We've had people listening to this for 200 episodes, and we've been really pleased with how many people have been interested in hearing about European news. But we still hear at least 10 times more in our national media here in Europe about American politics than we do about neighboring countries in Europe. I mean, there was an election in Sweden this week. There's one, quite an important one coming up in Italy. And I'm still hearing more about the midterm elections in America. Do you think this will ever change? You know, American politics is always interesting. Uh, it has always been so. And I say this, you know, as an avid transatlanticist and someone who studied in the U.S. first at high school for a year and then for four years in, in university. There is always sort of this thinking that, you know, in America, the cradle democracy. And obviously it's also a democracy which is very personified in the persona of the president at a given time. It's, it's one of the great powers of the world, a superpower and in, in many ways. So elections are interesting in the United States. I guess the comparison that one should make is that why isn't the election of the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, as interesting as the American elections? Well, it's about culture, it's about tradition, it's about history. I actually follow all kinds of elections. It doesn't matter where they are in the world. You know, the Swedish election is fascinating as we speak. We have fascinating elections coming up in Italy. But I guess the bottom line is to say that in Europe, you see elections come and go. 27 countries in the EU, election cycles usually four every four years. So every four years, we have 27 European elections, whereas in the US, we basically have the presidential elections and then we have the midterms. It's sort of two elections instead of 27. And that's probably what attacks our attention span a little bit. Do you think it will be possible for most people living in, I don't know, Italy or Sweden or Finland or wherever to think of themselves as Europeans, though, so long as we keep this fixation on politics on the other side of the Atlantic? Yeah, definitely. But we always talk about this European demos or this sort of European identity. I mean, to a certain extent, it comes and goes a little bit. I think right now, many of us feel strongly European. Why? Not because of the United States, but because of Russian aggression. I do think that, you know, a certain sense of Europeanness exists, but we're also very good at bashing ourselves, you know? I've traveled in over 120 countries. I've lived in, well, soon to be, I don't know, somewhere eight to 10 countries. 
And I've got to tell you that the fundamental question that you have to ask about yourself is, where do you really want to live? And as international as I am, I always end up saying, I actually like living in Europe for so many reasons. Of course, it's a well-off continent. It's a modern continent. It's got security and welfare. It's got technology and infrastructure. It's got history and culture. And it's a fairly safe place to live. So, you know, we have to give ourselves sometimes a little bit of credit. And when we do that, it's more interesting to follow European politics as well. Thank you very much to Alexander Stu for joining us. If you are someone who uses Twitter, you might like to join his half a million or so followers. He is there at Alex Stoop, tweeting a mix of political analysis and extreme sports. It is the grand return of Isolation Inspiration. What have you been enjoying while we've been away, Dominic? Well, I wanted to talk about two songs that I've had on repeat recently, two very different pieces of music. So if you don't like one, maybe you'll like the other. The first is a song I became obsessed with over the summer from a young jazz duo who are currently taking the world by storm. And they're called Domi and J.D. Beck. And J.D. Beck is a 19-year-old jazz drummer from Dallas, Texas. And Domi is a 22-year-old virtuoso jazz pianist from Metz in northeast France. Mm -hmm. She began her studies at the Conservatoire de Paris and then went on to Berklee College of Music in Boston, where she met JD. And I discovered them first via some YouTube videos of some pretty bonkers live sets of theirs that went a bit viral, showing off their extraordinary talents. They are both incredibly original characters and prodigious but understated performers. This summer, they released their first album, and the track I became obsessed with and had on repeat for weeks was their track featuring Anderson Pack. It's called Take a Chance, and it's on the cheesy, lighter R&B side of their output, but I love it. Have you heard about them in France? Because she's French? I had not. No, I'm going to check them out. And the other piece I've been listening to a lot this week is a piece that I heard during some coverage on the radio following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. They played a clip of a choral anthem that I knew but hadn't heard in many years and I couldn't quite remember what it was called, but I looked it up and I found out that it's a piece called Thou Wilt Keep Him in Perfect Peace, written in 1853 by the English organist and composer Samuel Sebastian Wesley. And they played it because it was one of the many pieces of music played during her coronation 70 years ago. And now I'm not religious, nor do I have a particular fascination with the British royals or the music of the coronations, but I do really love this piece of English church music. And I was really touched when I heard it on the radio in relation to the Queen's death.
English church music is actually a tradition of music which I was really immersed in for many years in my university years when I met Katie. We didn't meet in church, just to clarify. <laughs> no, that's true. We most certainly did not. Um, but I really recommend listening to Thou Will Keep Him in Perfect Peace because I think it's really beautiful. It's about as different from the other song I recommended as it could be, except for the fact that it's also quite cheesy. So apparently I'm in a sentimental, cheesy mood this week. It's always okay to be in a sentimental, cheesy mood. What have you been enjoying? Well, uh, since you forced my arm and we are talking about the British royal family, um, I personally haven't really known how to feel this week. Uh, I have a fairly ambivalent relationship with the British monarchy, I guess you could say. I am a French Republican by adoption. Um, But among the masses of coverage of the Queen's death, there was one piece that really stood out for me. And that was a very thoughtful obituary written for Politico Europe by Otto English. And it's really different from most of the other pieces you'll read. I don't think it's at all disrespectful, but it does reflect on how being silent was a really big part of who Elizabeth was as a public figure and how little we really knew about her. Um, It also includes quite a lot of anecdotes that I think you won't find in obituaries that are uh, published by media outlets that, let's just say, might be a bit more fearful of offending lovers of the Queen. A lot of these kind of pieces are veered more towards like, wanting to make sure that they're paying tribute rather than trying to paint a truly honest picture of who Elizabeth was as a person. Um, I think this piece was a really fascinating read. It is called The Short Unhappy Life of Elizabeth Windsor, and I will post a link to it in the show notes. Time for a happy ending. Now, whilst we've been away on our summer break, the weather got even more scary in Europe with heat waves, droughts, wildfires, all causing danger and destruction across the continent. And actually, according to the Copernicus Climate Change Service, it's now official. 2022 was Europe's hottest summer on record. True to form, you have returned for this new season with what doesn't sound at all like a happy ending. What's the deal? Hold your horses. I'm getting to the happy bit now because one of my favorite stories I read over the summer was about how some four-legged friends have been helping with this dangerous weather. It was about a group of sheep and goat who are functioning as firefighters to limit wildfires in the National Park of Colserola near Barcelona. And now this strategy is not something new. Animals have been helping avoid wildfires for um, ever, pretty much. But deliberately placing animals in areas prone to wildfires has been having a bit of a resurgence in recent years. This latest successful pilot near Barcelona has involved a group of 290 sheep and goat who were put in an area to chew on and trample over dry vegetation that would otherwise be perfect kindling for fire. Just to interrupt, you keep saying sheep and goat. Just to clarify, is there only one goat? (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It should probably be sheep and goats. It's the plural of goat, goats. Yes, I will remind you that English is your first language. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living abroad for so long that I I only speak Euro English now. Although most people in the Netherlands speak better English than me, so there's no excuse. Anyway. Um, anyway, so I've got distracted. Multiple goats. <laughs> yes, even if the multiple goats and sheeps <laughs> can't chomp on all the dry vegetation to completely remove risk of fire, they can at least create fire break areas which limit the likelihood of any fires 
spreading too far. And actually, the risk of fire is pretty large in this park. It's a park of 20,000 acres, and there are an average of 50 fires per year. So their help is much needed and apparently much more affordable than alternative mechanical measures to clear dry vegetation. And actually, I discovered that our producer, Katz Laszlo, grew up in exactly this area and remembers seeing wildfires in the neighbouring mountain with helicopters hovering above desperately trying to put the fires out. So it's not a new problem. Temperatures have reached high levels for a long time in this area. But as I've mentioned before on this show, it's the fact that the temperatures are reaching such high levels more frequently and for longer periods of time that makes the risk of fire so much higher and so much more potentially dangerous especially in a place with so many pine trees, as pine kernels are incredibly flammable, as cats, our producer, pointed out to me, because she used to also use them and collect them to like help make a fire at home and cook food with it. Mm. But hopefully with the help of these goats and sheep, the fires will become less dangerous and less common. And it's actually a practice that's happening all over the place. I didn't really realize it's like really popular in California and British Columbia. There's a huge program in Andalusia involving more than 100,000 animals. Wow. I got to see some of those on my trip to British Columbia and California. I hung out with sheep and goat. Well done. And did you see any wildfires? Uh, I didn't, but I did smell one and it was very disturbing. Adding to this general sense of uh, cataclysm over the summer. Yay! Happy ending! To leave you on a cheerier note, there was also actually a really nice quote in this Guardian article about this piece from the Barcelona City Councillor for Climate Emergency and Ecological Transition. Apparently the animals have been drawing crowds and lots of families have been like going to see the sheep and the goats. Um, He said that it's also had an important social and cultural impact. So yay for the sheep and goats. Thank you for your help. And is it for this week? It's nice to be able to say that. I'm glad that we're back finally. Me too. And back with renewed vigor. If you are an Instagram user, you may have noticed that we've decided to start trying to be more active on that platform, uh, which so far consists of Dominic making psychedelic videos of his own head. You can see his first masterpieces at instagram.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We are also on Twitter at Europeans pod. And if there's something you really think we should be covering now that we're back, drop us an email and tell us about it. Hello at europeanspodcast.com. This episode was produced by my lovely colleague Katie Lee and our other lovely lovely colleague Wojciech Oleksiak and our other lovely colleague Katz Laszlo is away working on some very exciting episodes that will be in your ears soon. This podcast is a member of the Are We Europe podcast family. You can check out their other audio offerings at areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. See you next week, everyone. Bye bye. Hey, door.